Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using factor-based strategies from 22 published books and academic research papers with long-term track records of success. Validia has combed through books about historically successful investors such as Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, and Peter Lynch, and academic research papers that contain unique investment strategies and uses them to run model portfolios it has tracked since 2003. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. Through the end of February, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product to listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia, or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A.com forward slash Toby. We're live. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. It's 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. 6.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Happy Australia Day for yesterday. It always creeps off on me a day early over here, but I managed to get the tweet out, so I feel a bit better this year. And uh, it's like 6.30 UTC. If you want to hear it live, go to the YouTube channel, sign up, hear this inanity live, join in, leave a comment. We'll ignore most of them and <laughs> cherry pick the ones that back up our case. <laughs> yeah. That's right. How are you, fellas? Confirmation bias. <laughs> What's Australia Day, by the way? It's like, uh, you know, like July 4th. 4th. Of July. Yeah. Okay. It's January 26th, just so you can stick it in your calendar and celebrate with a meat pie and a lamington. That's when all the they let all the convicts into the into Australia. <laughs> I, f- I think that that was it. Might have been the day that it, James Cook stubbed his toe on the beach, but uh, I'm not I'm not Captain Cook. But I don't know. I've been I had to pass the citizenship test over here, so I had to jam my head full of a whole lot of other useless stuff. So <laughs> some of the other stuff <laughs> fell out. Yeah, it's gonna happen. That citizenship test is tough. From what I've heard, yeah, I'm tough. sure I couldn't pass it. It's like a hundred nah, yeah, questions, yeah. and you got to get six six out of like ten right, or something like that. So it wasn't that hard to pass. That math doesn't. Add I'm, ta- up. I'm taking her for a great U.S. citizen. <laughs> and you get to study beforehand. Well, yeah. What are we talking about that's, today, fellas? That's what we need to change. We should just make people take it sight unseen. Really pull the ladder up behind us. I mean, the questions are like, what ocean is to the west? What ocean is to the east? It's not super oh, hard. What no. country is to the south? What country is to the north? They're uh, not like, who authored the Federalist Papers? Or <laughs> there, may have been, there may have been something like that in there. I can't remember. It's a little while now. Okay. Who cares if you don't know that the Indian Ocean's next to us? That's it. <laughs> Right? Sounds right. <laughs> Checks out. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I was going to talk about, um, I guess, Pabri shift to compounders, um, but maybe I'll talk about game because that's what people want to hear about. GameStop? Getting, yeah. Getting game, game stopped? That's the big news at the moment, right? That's the thing. Is that that's... a verb yet? Yeah, well, that's what they want. I think someone suggested it to the uh, Urban Dictionary, game stopped. When your shorts get taken over by Wall Street bets and ramped mm. to the moon or ramped to Mars, and that's game over. 
some big Did hedge fund comes yesterday? in. Yesterday, it was wild. The based on the price action, you you could have been down fifty percent yesterday if you'd top ticked it. Oh. While the on the day, the whole thing is still up fifty percent. <laughs> wow. Nobody's just in the equity though. Everybody's in the options. Okay. The moves are bigger than that. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what the options look like. What do you like, 3x all those numbers? Oh, maybe more. I don't know. I think some guys have really blown themselves up. I think some guys have made some real money too. Jesus. We got a shout out to uh, Scotty who, uh, who who called back in the podcast with me in August. He said Wall Street bets uh, are all over GameStop and uh, they're going to. There's a hundred percent of the shares short, so they're trying to engineer a short squeeze. And uh, I think I laughed and thought, "There's no way that's going to happen." But he was right. Full credit. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I think you're on here, Scotty. Aren't you? I saw you. I saw you at the, at the top. Give me a yeah, shout out. Yeah, he's one of the you. guys that I actually count as like truly correct. Right. So yeah, right some people right have reasons. said like some people are like, "Oh, I held game too," and it's like, "All right." I mean, look, I get it. If uh, if you're down, like, put yourself in good situations and good things can happen if you define it as a good situation. I'm still never got there with that, but whatever. Uh, like, fine, if you want to take your little lap now. But Scotty's one of the only ones that I actually saw articulate that Wall Street bets might put a crazy short squeeze on this thing, and it's worth it for that reason. Yeah. That's called actually being right. He said, he said on the little clip that he... he that he put out that I retweeted that it was a melting ice cube, but you got Burry in there and Wall Street bets and 100% short, so there could be a nuclear yeah. explosion at some point, which was her his words, and uh, that's exactly what happened. Good job. So that's right. So like, I'm not I'm not taking a shot at Burry here, but like, I don't consider this like Burry being proven correct, right? This is closer to Scotty being right and Burry just being in the right pond and getting lucky, which I would rather be lucky and rich than good and and poor you like i'm you not trying burry to be... was in there though okay that's fair i guess if mike burry was there in the wall street bets thesis then i will not i will chalk it up to a win for him i mean if if someone like burry gets right again and again and again you got to start thinking you know this is this is enemy action this isn't happenstance or coincidence this is the real thing right yeah i i mean look i don't know maybe mike burry was in there for the wall street bets squeeze uh I, I tend to think that he probably wasn't, but that, you know, something really good happened and he was in the right pond. And if again, you, but I'd if rather... you go back and read Burry's letters, those early letters, he talks about he's he's explicit about the three types of investments that he looks at. He looks for he wants to fill a portfolio with compounders, but if you can't find compounders, then he'll do earnings plays. If you can't find earnings plays, then he'll do asset plays. Yeah, but this was none of it. This is a speculation play it's driven an asset by play. the options market. It's an asset no, play. it's not an asset play. It's a it's a it's a betting play. Who's the gentleman who uh, punched out of Chewy, and then he's put it into three stocks? It's like Apple that's gone up three hundred percent, and then GameStop, which is up some r ridiculous amounts. Ryan Ryan Cohen. Ryan Cohen, yeah. Who who is this legendary investor who none of us have heard of before? Ryan oh, Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Entrepreneur turned investor. Like he's only done, as far as I can see, he's done three or four things, and he's absolutely shot the moon with all of them. Yeah, I mean, GameStop isn't shooting the moon. Have you looked at the chart, bro? 
Yeah, I'm just saying there's a difference between what is going on and being right. And I don't even care. It's like it's like if somebody's on a golf course and they shank the ball. My friend, we went on a family vacation. My family paid for him. You're welcome, Jimmy Gabatosi. Anyway, he breaks his four iron because he's pissed off at some shot uh, on a different hole. And he takes out this three iron on the ninth hole of Pinehurst number two. I'm pretty sure it's nine. It's a par three. And I don't care what he says. He bladed this shot. It was a shit shot. I know it was a shit shot, and he knows it was a shit shot. End of the day, it went in the hole. And, uh, you know, the caddy said it was good off the face. He didn't hit it pure, but he got the hole in one, and I didn't. And I still never have had one. So who really cares if it was the right shot or not? The guy got the hole in one. Just write it in that part of the scorecard where you record how you – how, how the hole went, you know, that, that part where you f- your feelings about each part of the shot. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like if they please let them squeeze curate, like I will not care at all if I'm right for the wrong reason or wrong and right or whatever, just richer, but wrong. I'll take it. Like squeeze it. It's a dying asset. No one likes it. Please go nuts on it. Wall Street bets. Scotty says Brian Cohen took three GME board seats and a 12% stake. And his yeah. other position was Wells Fargo. Boom. Dude knows his shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he tax lost harvest. <laughs> In the Wells Fargo. Right out of the game. You know, I was talking about Wells Fargo the other day. This actually sort of loops into Pabri's transformation. Uh, the reason that I have not gotten back into Wells is... Uh, I like I've been spending time on one different names, but two thinking more along the lines of like, would it just make more sense to pay up for something like Ally where I have a pretty high degree of confidence that that business will be bigger in 10 years than it is today versus like Wells, which I think, you know, I mean, I, I believe in Sharf. I believe in what they're doing over there, but I do think that like objectively, if nothing else, the business is so much bigger than Ally that it's harder to grow just as a function of the law of large numbers. So does it make sense to, you know, make a more expensive bet today if you think that the business that you're betting on is going to grow in the future? That's sort of what kept me out of it. And I think that, like, I was just listening to Pabri's Manual of Ideas uh, presentation. And I think that's basically where he's gotten to. And I think that, uh, I mean, that's sort of, where I think is a reasonable place to play. Um, you know, I understand it's hard, but I don't think value investing in the traditional sense is particularly easy either. No, I mean, I, I was telling you guys before we came on, but I ran that. Um, I've been I've been looking at, you know, what if we only limited ourselves to explicitly to very good companies and what happens over the last two decades? And I've been trying to find, so the, the same definition applies last time. It's like a 20% return on equity or better, gross margins of 35% or better, and then form a portfolio and then try and determine the drivers of performance of that portfolio by holding from the beginning of, you know, 2000, 1999 to date, and then every year buying a crop of companies and seeing what, um, you know, just running a simple regression to see what characteristics of that basket of companies led to them being outperformers. Return on equity, better return on equity gives you a negative slope, which means that the higher the return on equity in that portfolio, the 
the lower the returns. So what you and, and the, the thing that worked best was just price to free cash flow, which is the the value metric. So the higher the price to free cash flow, even twenty years ago, the better the performance through to today. So I I'm. <laughs> I'm not ready to throw in value yet. I'm not going to throw a deep value out the out the door. But the, the other observation was that when I look at the companies that it's sort of identified, because I've gone through it with a fine tooth comb just to see if I can figure out, you know, if I looked at the names, would I have been able to buy and hold these names for the whole period? It's very hard to tell what's going to win. The few things that I observed is like it wanted to buy the, you remember when uh, all the for-profit colleges got shut down? Yeah. It wanted to buy the for-profit colleges all the way through that, so it bought Apollo mm. and it bought uh, uh, ESIN, which is now ESIQ. Yeah. What was that? I actually did own it, but I can't think what it's called now. But the um, yeah, I just can't think what it is. So it wanted to buy those things. So I don't know if you could have sidestepped them at the time by thinking there's a lot of government regulation in these things, and maybe that's maybe some of those old ideas are good. You want to avoid things that are overregulated or surviving thanks to government regulation. Like cable? No. I don't know, man. Um, if the government, the, the problem is that if you if you approach it that way, like there's not a lot of stuff that gets through the screen. Yeah. I was gonna say, what isn't surviving on little government help at the moment? Well, I mean, the buff dog is. Uh, he's never been afraid to take advantage of regulatory capture. Yeah, that's didn't take any PPP though. Yeah, that's true. But all of his bank holdings got indirect bailouts. Also in two thousand eight nine, right? More more direct bailouts in two thousand eight nine. Yeah, he, I think he's he's said as much too. He said, um, "I'd have been working at McDonald's rather than buying at the drive-through if I hadn't been bailed out in two thousand eight nine." He said that something like that. Yeah, really? I don't think he said that. I'll find the quote. If anybody can Fake find the news. quote, you are wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I I think um, I've I've been looking more for businesses that will grow than I have been looking at valuation, which uh, unfortunately, once you then look at the valuation, eliminates a lot of stuff. But at least I'll be ready when it comes back. Yeah. So, what are you looking at? What's interesting in there? Uh, I don't. I can tell you that things that I like are like uh, it's easy for me to understand ideas that um involve like stores opening up turning point brands is a growth story that i understand right because it's like chewing tobacco and it involves getting into more doors right so they have a natural share in the geography that they're sold in they under index in other geographies they need to get their salespeople out to get their product into those markets the their main chewing tobacco is like a low cost good that if you look at the reviews online is like well received so that's like growth that I get comfortable with. Um, you know, like once you start to get sort of like, uh, like Ollie's, I mean, I talked about that in the past. That's a very similar story. Um, once you get into like pretty saturated names and you're relying on like uh, same store sales and pushing price, I mean, not everyone can increase price in perpetuity, right? So uh, I get... I get a little more nervous about that, especially when it's on the retail side. So you prefer rolling out rolling out stores to increasing prices. That's a simpler growth story. 
Yeah, I think so. And then, and then, like organic volume growth would be another thing that I would prefer to price increases. All else equal, so that's sort of the stuff that I look for, or the stuff that I am looking for. Is Chipotle, does Chipotle fall into that bucket? I mean, price aside, I, I think that I would. Uh, extra. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chipotle would. I I never got back into Chipotle because they had the. Um, that Listeria scare, and I just, I really thought that that would go to, uh, I don't know, I thought that that would go to, like, the core of the cons the consumer habit uh, that led people to consistently go to Chipotle. Like, I thought that it would break it. And if you look at same-store sales, it did do damage. Um, Wasn't that's the same reason. What? Wasn't it norovirus rather than Listeria? Yeah, whatever it was. Well, the difference is that norovirus is, like, just... It's the thing that takes down cruise ships because one person gets sick, it spreads really easily. No. Whereas listeria is something that's it's foodborne. It's like if you don't, you know, it comes from like melon. If you cut through the melon, it can be on the outside because of, oh. of the soil. And so one is like just really bad luck. Like anybody can get norovirus breakout can happen anywhere. And it's not because your food preparation is, there's anything wrong with your food preparation. It's just somebody in the store is sick and everybody gets sick. Hmm. And that was always the challenge for them, right? Because they were fresh. Everything was fresh. So, like, if this is listeria, then that could be, if it gets on a knife, it goes into every single thing they prepare and can make a whole lot of people sick. I always thought it was a little bit unlucky. I just looked at it and thought it was too expensive at the time that I looked at it. But I think, did you, you held it then, JT, didn't you? You, hold, you held it at one stage. No. I no, that. I didn't. I, I wanted to buy it in that scare and just kind of never quite got down cheap enough where I where I liked it to my detriment probably yeah Bill Bill figured out what the right the right Bill Ackman sorry other Bill yeah not this <laughs> yeah. Bill the little Bill not the big Bill so I got the yeah. I got the quote here if the government had enacted I would be eating Thanksgiving dinner at McDonald's that's a little bit different to working there wow <laughs> I take it back huh All there right. you have it that's pretty good huh the were, buff dog. Were you, He's the best. Bill, were you gonna were you gonna talk about Prabhai's letter again? Were you gonna talk about his Oh no, I, no, I mean that's the whole takeaway is he's basically like hunting for, you know, businesses that he thinks are gonna compound. And that is what I have been doing. Um and and it's Pretty what I think I'm gonna contrarian do. Contrarian idea right now. Well, I think it's the right idea. I mean okay. I d I don't know like What's the alternative? I can search around for some fifty cent shit co so I can sell it and pay taxes and go do it again. Like that doesn't appeal to me anymore. Uh, I I do think like if I had an ETF that could churn out of these things and I didn't have to spend the time digging through it and I didn't have to pay taxes, like then all of a sudden things get a little bit more intriguing in the in the structure. But the idea of like finding some fucking business like Graph Tech that I'm going to get screwed on because of agency costs and somebody like pitch it is cheap. I, no, it's not worth my time to do that anymore. I, I'd rather go walk like on an actual walk. Yeah, that's fair. If you're going to, if you're going to do the buy and sell, you need a, um, you need a tax advantage structure. If you're going to hold, then I think you want, you need to do some more work on stuff that's going to do better over years and years and years, which is sort of what I've been trying to do to figure out what is the driver of that, it's been an unsatisfactory exercise so far, honestly, because it's the two things that really stand out. One is it's still sort of driven by value. 
And the other thing is that there's a lot of luck in there. I, I, I just eyeball those names and think I probably would have bought that. And then I look at the percentage return and it's negative 99%. I'm like, oh, there you go. I mean, we'll circle back to my beloved curate. Um, you know, like here, I, I mean, I understand why people think it's cheap. I don't think it's like screamingly cheap or anything. I think it's pretty fair now. So, you know, I mean... I don't know. I've just been thinking about like that bet I think was a good bet. Um, I think it was right for the right reasons, but you know, I mean, I put like 15% of my book in it. Um, and that, that changed, you know, my whole year or whatever. And I like that, uh, mostly cause of the outcome, I like money. <laughs> no, but, um, <clears throat> I don't know. Like is what's more, um, sort of doable on a go forward basis and repeatable and you know I, i'm obviously open to those kind of ideas and i want to do that kind of thing when it's like blaringly obvious or glaringly obvious or whatever but um you know that was a setup where i understood all the players and i sort of saw something different in the cash return and you know it's going to take like a really unique situation to get me to sort of say like, like, so I'm in this group and we're reading all the hedge fund letters that were written and like, we're discussing what, do, what do we like about these guys, how they think, what do we like about how they don't think, what would, you know, who would we want to sort of like emulate ourselves after stuff like that. There's so many pitches of like, this is a 50 cent dollar and it doesn't address like agency costs. It doesn't address what's going to make it re-rate. It doesn't address why no one has ever bought it over the last three years. And like, I just think that, you know, those sort of those pitches are a dime a dozen and you can find them wherever you want to. So yep. I'm trying to find like the really scarce idea. Yeah. 100%. That's what I regard. That's what I was trying to articulate to you on the podcast. That what I describe as sort of being invincible. Those ideas yeah. that you just, with the information that you have to hand at the time that you're constructing the portfolio, there's no downside. Not to say that there's no downside, like there's all, there's black swans and there's all that sort of risk out there, but things where, and you've got to ask those questions, like that's a good question. Why hasn't someone bought this over the last three years? Because it's not, it's not like we're all not out there hunting for them, you know? So if somebody's, yeah. somebody big and smart has had a look at that and not, not taken a bite of it, you want to know why, right? Yeah. And like, I think, you know, like, um, I mean, Ian Castle, I think you know, he's my top of mind, small cap guy. There's a lot of good ones. Uh, Connor Haley is somebody that I've been studying a little bit too. Um, you know, like those guys I think are playing in a pond that I, I mean, I've been saying it now for almost a year. I should definitely dedicate more time to, uh, I would be like the way my head works is I would be looking for small cap management teams with momentum because like some of these smaller, like, left behind small caps, I'd sort of wonder why hasn't private equity come over the top and bought them out, right? And it's probably, I mean, my guess, just statistically speaking, is they probably have some agreement that entrenches management and and kind of muddle around and make a decent, you know, living. They all have Stuff that. Stuff doesn't interest me. They all have that. It just... Yeah. It, it, it's, it's infuriating going through that list and just seeing how many of them are making money off their shareholders rather than trying to like do a little bit better and help the shareholders make some money. 
Yeah, and like, look, I'm down. If Wall Street bets want to say, you know, fuck this, let's run an activist campaign, I will team up and oust management teams. Like, I am about activism. I want a. Aren't they entrenched? Though. Though? Don't they all have the poison pills and the poison puts? Wall Street bets is a whole different animal, boards. man. They might they might go at them in the political realm. Well, that was I the, don't know. You know, that was what the early 2000s was all about. That was what Robert Chapman yeah. and. Um, Couple of them, yeah. Well, Loeb, right? Loeb, Didn't you yeah. say Loeb would use yeah. Yeah. Well, Loeb, yeah. Loeb learned it from Chapman. Chapman wrote. Chapman says that he wrote the first thirteen D letter, you know, the first nasty gram attached to a thirteen D filing, and then Loeb saw it. And Loeb says this as well that he saw Chapman do it, and then that was what kicked it off for a period of time, like that mid two thousands, early two thousands. That was what I, I thought yeah, it was read, fascinating. Yeah, read Jeff Graham's great book about that, dear Chairman. Yeah. I should read that book. You know I just got all my books back. I do in deep value. Bang. Dude, deep value. A lot of that smart people. Textbook. But J- yeah, I don't know. JT, you want to do your you want to do your topic? Yeah. I've got kind of a fun one today, maybe. Um my topic today is uh about bullfighting. And so <clears throat> I don't know if you guys know, but like Ernest Hemingway was a huge bullfighting fan. And he he has this great quote. He says, there are only three sports, bullfighting, motor racing, and mountaineering. All the rest are merely games. So he liked, I think, sports where your life was on the line. Otherwise, it's just you're just playing a game. Not boxing. Um, boxing didn't qualify. Not according to... Not according to Hemingway. Hemingway, yeah. So in The Sun Also Rises, which is one of his books... Um, he turned the running of the bulls in in uh, Pamplona from this obscure kind of regional event into like a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, and then he actually went on to he wrote this book called Death in the Afternoon, and it's like a 517 page nonfiction book that explains all about bullfighting and the process of it. Uh, so he was a huge fan of it, which. You know, it's it's a very controversial subject because, you know, there's obviously some ethical dilemmas about how the bulls are treated and what happens to them, um, the kind of glorification of violence. But, um, you know, Hemingway encouraged people to look at it as like this kind of an art and that, you know, the matador's lines and like the shapes that they would take were very artistic. Like there was a style to it. It wasn't just like you get in there and like chop at a bull with your sword or something it was like this whole procedure and you know the um a really proper final stroke was had to like the 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 matador to do it properly had to put themselves in harm's way as close as possible to do the proper like the one that the, the crowd would celebrate right like they had to take it to the edge and there was like an aesthetic pleasure and a pride in a in a very clean kill um, which is, I, I think it's kind of an interesting thing, but what I think what's really kind of very interesting is at the highest level of esteem for Spanish bullfighter is the crowd wants to see how they react after they've been gored, right? Like everybody can come in there when they're fresh and, but you don't win the crowd over until you've actually been gored. And how do you respond to that? Now, hmm. this, uh, I have to tell another story here about this woman named Conchita Cintron. Born in 1922 in Chile, her father was a Puerto Rican and her American mother. She was, uh, and her father was actually uh, a West Point grad. 
but she grew up in Peru riding horses and became a bullfighter on horseback, which is one version of bullfighting that they have. Um, so in 1938, she made a splash in Mexico City uh, where she you know, was like a, a regular bullfighter on, on her feet. Um, and she, like the crowd went crazy for her and like just her lines and her style uh, were just like so graceful. So in 1940, she's gored in Mexico City. She's famous. She's taken to an infirmary. She refuses surgery, returns to the arena. And with one quick thrust, she dispatches the bull and then she collapses and the oh, crowd man. goes insane. Yeah, that's All, gangster. And, yeah, and so she's, this is how she responded after being gored, right? So all over, like she became a huge draw all over the world, traveled, did bullfighting. So next great story of her, 1949 in Spain, women aren't allowed to fight bulls on foot in 1949. Uh, so after performing her horseback kind of routine with the bull, she, she rides past the Presidente's uh, like cube or box and asks Franco if she can dismount and finish the bull and she gets denied. So she ignores the order, gets the sword away from like the man who was supposed to take care of it, uh, goes in for the kill and like drops her sword just as the bull is charging. And she, she, uh, she simulated the kill by like lightly touching with her fingertips the shoulder of the bull as it charges <laughs> past her. <laughs> right. Uh, then she, like the crowd goes crazy. She walks off calmly and gets arrested for it. Wow. And then like there was a, then there were riots in Spain and they released her. So uh, what was interesting, like her, Orson Welles actually wrote the, an intro of her memoirs. And he said that her career ended in a single burst of gl glorious criminality. And so she, over time, she had killed 750 bulls over her career. So anyway, the, um, you know, where can we sort of torture this back into an analogy for us? You know, this, this idea of how do you respond when you've been gored? And like, you know, do you handle it with a plum or do you pout or are you a baby about it? I think this, there's a lot for us to learn as well. Cause you, and you're never going to be respected by the by the unwashed masses <laughs> or the crowd if you if you don't handle your defeats with a certain stiff lip and and uh you know how do you bounce back that's the highest level that you can kind of attain so i, I just thought that was kind of a cool thing for you know if you've if you've maybe taken some licks lately you know how do you handle it so her name was conchita citron yeah and what and what's the book uh is is the Hemingway book about her? No, it's just more general about like the the process of a bullfight, all the like a bunch of facts about it. What's her, what's her what's her book called? Uh, I'm not sure. Don't have it there. Yeah, I don't have it. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's uh, what a beast. Yeah. I, I've in the last just pre-COVID, I went to Spain and to Mexico City and didn't get to see a bullfight in either, and I was trying to track one down in each, but it's. In Madrid and, and Mexico, well, neither neither was sort of um, I don't know why it's just not that was not sort of they they weren't eager to let let me out there and have a look at them. Probably that's a good thing, but I was I wanted to just go and see the spectacle just to see what it was like. Yeah, I have a friend. I saw one in Mexico once. I was kind of sad was that they hurt the bull before yeah. the bull came out. Oh, really? I felt like that was yeah, not uh, that's not very sporting. 
<clears throat> no, it wasn't. Yeah. Like, at least let the bull have a good shot at goring the guy. He probably went to some janky bullfight. Yeah. That was a donkey show, Bill. <laughs> oh. Um, no, I have a, I have a friend who's a Harvard-trained uh, lawyer who learnt to uh, fight bulls, and uh, she's a she, she's from she's from Singapore. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to say her name on this because she's a very publicity show, but yeah, uh, she's not she's not a very tall woman either. I'd take my hat off to her, take some ticket to get in there and do that. Oh my God! Can you imagine? Things are huge. I mean, I when Bull I was fighting, it's no scarier than value investing. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to get in, the, you... get in the crush with the Brahmin. They're pretty scary. They're pretty tall, angry animals with horns. But I, I, I wouldn't. I don't know. You, you have to be pretty tall to get a blade in between their shoulders. With, with what? Brahmins. What kind of animal? Brahmins. The Brahmins. The Brahmins. Yeah, they're the um, the ones with the hump and the horns, and the and like no fur. They like a wild pig? No, it's a it's a it's a type of it's a breed of cattle. There are two oh, okay. two broad breeds. They're, they're sort of uh, they're drought drought resistant, tick resistant. So if you come from a dry area with lots of ticks, uh, you, oh, you, you I want see Brahmin this. Brahmin type. That's a weird hump. Yeah, and they're they're kind of smart. They're smart and they're angry. I guess they're kind of I think they're I don't know where they are originally. They're African or Indian or something like that, but they. They they're used to being chased by predators, so they're they're pretty uh, ornery. At my bachelor party, <laughs> uh, we were a little intoxicated, and this dude comes over. He's like, "We were in Austin." This out this at is a, a family podcast. So I don't at, know where yeah, this no, I'm not, I'm not gonna get like crazy, but uh, out at the lake in Austin, and uh, the dude's like, "You guys want to go see a longhorn?" It was like the landlord. I was like, "Yeah, I want to go see a, la- a longhorn." It was like a 10 at night. I hop into the back of this guy's pickup. Bad idea. He drives me into this, uh, like, you know, field, right? It's pitch black. And he's like, uh, starts backing up the truck at this cow. And the, like this longhorn with these huge freaking horns, like was grunting and sort of charging at the car. I was very nervous, but nothing happened. But I could see how you could get gored by a cow pretty easily. Those horns are serious. I didn't like being in the back of the car without protection with this crazy idiot driving me, but I had already made my bad decision. It was time to just go along with it. That would not be a very glorious story if you told somebody that. I mean, gored by a bull is is uh, is pretty real, but I I think we've 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 sidetracked a little bit. But I like the I like the thesis of JT's idea that uh, you know until you're gored by the bull. So clearly the the example in the market is like I think anybody who kind of made it through March. Last year, uh, that was a goring. I, I said at the time, everybody's got their stripes now. Same idea. Yeah, I don't know. Same I think idea. that a closer analogy would be like, you know, for for uh, those seeing people that are touting returns. I mean, you know, God forbid your returns aren't triple digits or something <laughs> like that last year. Uh, you know, like sticking to process and whatnot would be... Uh, a better analogy. I'd rather be respected by my peers than the crowd. Also, that's a good point. There's a, and there's a uh, there's a little research note on the Alpha Architect website where Wes just for fun, I think, just did this research to see what's what's sort of the best returns over five year periods in terms of compound per year. 
in a mid cap and above kind of universe. So if you're doing 35% compound for five years, that's that's right on the outer limit of what you can achieve following kind of a value or momentum strategy. 35%? That's like perfect compound. foresight. Yeah, that was the perfect foresight one. Well, Buffett could do 50. So what's he got? That's a Well, well he, he might have been in a smaller, good, good smaller question. universe, smaller universe, and there's some luck in it too, right? That's the that's the one yeah. thing that I, I really have noticed doing this like fine tooth comb through these portfolios over the last uh, few weeks is that it's really really tough. Even with all of this, you know, I've got all of the hindsight bias. I got all the hindsight knowledge of what happened over that period. I try not to think about it. I try to just look at these names and think, you know, I and I, I bought ESI and Q. I can't even remember what the name of it is now, but um, it was hard to know at the time that those things weren't going to come back. Apollo yeah, was like well, a pretty good stock. Morningstar had it as like a wide mode, deeply undervalued stock. Dude, our man Value Stock Geek held GameStop and sold it last year. <laughs> things could be different today. I'm only saying it because he tweeted it out. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is really uh, under discussed with uh like this move to compounders and whatnot that people are are you know wanting myself included uh todd wedding replied to me on twitter when i talked about david gardner and he said uh i had i joined the montley fool in 2006 and had the pleasure of working with dg on a number of projects what what's amazing to me is his ability to handle massive losses in stride knowing his big wins will make those mistakes look tiny in the long run Right, like that. That size? I think is a very interesting insight. How does he size? I don't think I don't think big at all, right? Because he's, I mean, he's recommended you know hundreds and hundreds of stocks. He uh, he gave a presentation to Microcap Club where I think he said he had like over two hundred stocks or something in in the portfolio. So, you know, to have like to have a six bagger get cut in half and then get cut in half again and to have the conviction to be like i'll find the next one that's not so easy to do in real life it's a lot easier to read about and say oh i could do that when you know it's like jake says right no matter what your uh strategy is the market's going to end up bending your will at some point you just got to make sure it doesn't break you there's a good intro to my common stocks and uncommon profits um where the son is talking about uh, Phil and he says, um, you know, when his father passed away and he had Alzheimer's near the end. So I'm not sure whether, I'm not sure how this plays into it, but he said when he went to look at the portfolio, like he had something like, I think I'm going to get this wrong, but he might've had like 800 positions in the portfolio. Yeah. And that's clearly because the way he thought about it was like, I'm going to buy this and then I'm just going to coffee can it and then yeah. keep on hunting for the next thing. I think if that's your approach, and you kind of you're investing what you make this year, then I think it makes some of those losers a little bit easier to take. You know, if you're running it like Buffett, where my best idea right now is going to be like thirty yes. percent of my capital, then you really, really got to know what you're doing. Yeah. So this is what I've been thinking about a lot lately, right? Is like, what is better for me to do? And I still think it's more the Buffett style. And I think I've proven to myself that it resonates better with me, and I am better like suited for it but uh like if my kids were starting out i think there's a lot of merit to like the david gardner strategy i do think one thing that he does is he's like i'm looking for dominant companies in like 
the next huge industry, right? So I do think that you got to go like really galaxy brain on how big something could be. So for instance, uh, Naked Wines is starting to get out there as an idea, right? But that TAM isn't really that big. So I don't know if that would actually like count. I, I think that probably wouldn't get in his bucket as to what could get big enough. But I'd love to talk to him. So come on my pod, David. Stop this rule. He won't come on because my podcast isn't a year old, which is bullshit. Because it's he, not a year old. Yeah, dude. And he's the guy that created the rule breaker strategy. So break your rule, bro. I'm worth it. I think the average podcast, there are nine episodes of the average podcast. So how many how many episodes are you up to now? I don't know. But that's what I said. To the, I'm going to write his assistant again and be like, just listen to this crap. I'm not like trying to get him on some crappy little podcast here. Like, I want to interview this guy. I got good questions for him. And I think he'd show well. Anyway, people put some pressure on DG. Tell him I love him. So I liked your Jen interview. That was fun. Yeah. It's wild to talk to her. She's got, I got to get her, she's got to get clearance to come back on. She talks like crazy stuff she does. But, you know, she couldn't like talk about it. Yeah. So when, when you're, you, for yourself, you want to do uh, a more Buffett style where you basically take the best idea every year or so and take like a 15% swing at it is kind of like, yeah, I think are like five or so. I mean, so I the best thing that I can tell you is like naked I have bet on because I do I do believe in where that company can go. I don't I'm not nearly as optimistic on their onboarding experience as some people. I, I think it's actually pretty atrocious. Uh so I think that could be the hiccup in the whole model. Um but like so that's a smaller bet for me because I do think there's execution risk. Um, now why is it in the portfolio? I don't know. That's maybe a legitimate question, but I do think it's pretty cheap as to where it could be like five or 10 years away from here. So I think it's, it's like worthy of a bet considering the management team and whatnot. But, uh, like curate, you know, was huge, but the reason was I thought the downside was so much lower. Um, and I, I could really articulate like why, and it was near duration cash flow. So I don't know that I have that kind of appetite in me all the time. Like, I think that's a unique bet. Um, but, you know, 5 to 10%, yeah, I do think I want to have a hurdle as to what can get in the portfolio. I was just trying to draw the distinction between what you want to do and what you would encourage your kids to do. You'd encourage your boys to do a slightly different strategy. Oh, he froze up. You're still there. You can, you can, there you go. Oh, all right. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think that I would probably encourage them to come out of the gate less concentrated and then let it grow. Um, I I sort of do like that strategy, but you got to hunt, and you know it's very possible that we're living in like one of the crazy times of change. It's also possible that this is all just a big bubble that makes that whole strategy look better than it really is. Like I don't I don't know, but the other thing that I do think objectively, like it's very hard to look at Gardner's track record and dismiss it as a function of the time i mean that guy has outperformed for a very long time so there's something there what about you jt what about the difference between what you do and what you would tell your kids your boys to do or even just would you tell them to do the same thing i don't want to i don't want to like suggest that you tell them something else yeah it's a good question what's a big position I mean, for you 
size wise? Yeah, at Inception. Oof. Uh, yeah, I mean, at cost, never more than ten percent. That's pretty big. Yeah, that's a lot. It has to be a pretty, pretty low range of outcomes, pretty tight and pretty reasonably positive expectation. But yeah, that's that's a. I like. I prefer a little bit more diversification than I often feel like I see. And I understand the arguments for. <laughs> there's kind of an argument to be made from a career standpoint of like, especially if you're early on swing for the fences, try to hit a home run and like get some kind of AUM escape velocity, not don't grind it out in the minor leagues, like working on, you know, a really reasonable conservative portfolio that will survive a lot of different outcomes. Um, but that's just how I'm wired. And since I manage money with identical to how I have my own money situated, then that's how it, it ends up happening. So I have smaller position sizes. I take way less uh, risk than I think probably career-wise would probably would be optimal. Um, but you know, I'm 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 about survival, not necessarily yeah. optimization. I'm, I want to survive across a lot of different things. I still want to be around doing this for a long time from now. And and I I know that you can go and blow up a portfolio and still come back into the game. I've seen that happen enough times. But I couldn't sit well with me if I like trashed an entire cohort of clients and then just like, well, sorry guys, I'm going to go find some new ones and start over. I, that, that is very distasteful to me. So I would, you're also betting your own money on it. Right. So like, I mean, in my situation too, it's not that easy to just blow up and be like, Oh, well now I have to sell everything and start over again. <laughs> like, no, I'm not into that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would advocate for people doing the higher, like I've, I've heard that argument lots of times, like do, do the higher volatility stuff when you're younger, have a few like swings for the fences, which I think you can do still within the context of like, just do it within the context of Kelly. Like don't, don't try to do it with your entire portfolio because I think that there's something to be said for the longer your track record, the, the, you know, well, the more marketable it is if that's what you're trying to do with it because you can say, look, I've survived. I've been here doing this for 10 years. You know, Lindy, my portfolio, like there's probably another 10 years in it. Whereas I, I think, mm. um, you know, you should be rightfully nervous about people who've blown up a few times. Like that John Merriweather famously blew up, you know, long-term capital management. And I think the next one blew up as well. And he was also on the trading floor when... Um, uh, just blanking on the name of that bank that Buffett had to bail out. What Solomon? Solomon. Solomon. Yeah. 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 Well, that fourth. But time that was, was a, a different issue, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, but, it's like yeah. gaming the gaming the uh, the, yeah. the bidding for the treasuries. I, yeah. I, I think if you can just some illegal treasury fixing, don't worry about that. We can add that one back. That's an adjustment to the career. If you're running your portfolio and you know you got you're getting flows to it, or you you can you're always you can always reshape the portfolio at any stage. You can always put a third of the portfolio into something that's a little bit more. You know, if you're trying to if you're trying to kind of hit the hit hit it out of the park, I, I sort of think that you're just better off not doing that because it's the, it's that's the problem that everybody has. Everybody buys the lottery tickets, whereas yeah. what they'd be better off doing is just focusing on getting you know sufficient return. I don't know. That's my bias too. Though. No, I think that's right. I just, I guess it, it, 
it matters how you think you're going to achieve the return and whether or not the strategy matches your personality, I think. Right. And like Matt Cochran is a guy that's helped me understand sort of the way that the rule breaker philosophy thinks a lot. And I think he's a guy that is sort of interesting because he came from the fool, but he's obviously got like some value leaning. Like he understands, you know, he's, he's sort of on the fence in the opposite way that I'm on the fence. And uh, you know what I mean? Like he toes his, his, you know, dips his toe in value occasionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like Matt. He's, he's straddles them yeah. both. Yeah. He does well. Yeah, so he j he's just been like really helpful to sort of contextualize what I used to look at and not understand. He's really helped me get, and you know, I think it's a rational strategy. Got a good question here. How did Peter Lynch do, do so well with an average of 150 stocks? That's I think it's probably cheap. like this. Interest rates went from 20 to five. Yeah, the period of time was very helpful, right? It was like 85 to 96 or something like that. Yeah. He also caught some real winners, man. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Didn't he get like comfort in? Wasn't it like super small and it was just like a couple hotels or something and he wrote it to become a national chain? I mean, if it's 150 stocks, it's like 0.66% of the portfolio, right? When it starts. Yeah, well, right? that's a... if it just runs and runs and runs and runs, it could end up 10, 12, 15%. That's right. That's one of the things that yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, but if, if, if that's what you're doing though, like... Just buy the index and go do go play golf instead. Don't bother doing any research. But well, he, yeah, maybe that's... you like doing it. He, yeah, he 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 traveled like he traveled. To all, he used to travel around and meet all of the managers of these 150 stocks. Yeah, like he lived a pretty awesome life. He was super connected. He got to have interesting conversations all the time. His clients were happy with what he was doing. Like I think that that's a worthwhile life pursuit. I don't know that I just outsource all that to an index. I think you could like you can narrow down your universe to, you know, undervalued, reasonably good growers. One hundred and fifty out of whatever your universe is, three thousand or one thousand or five hundred or whatever. Well, one hundred fifty out of five hundred. I think you should you be. Just got to avoid the showers. You got to find the growers. You can have a little bit of both. Why not? <laughs> I hate the showers. They're all value traps. I've, I've got no idea what we're talking about right now. I think this, I think I just derailed and Freudian slipped. That's one of the anyway. things, I, you know, so in this, in this little bit of testing that I've been doing, that's one of the things that I've noticed at inception, uh, you, your portfolio becomes increasingly concentrated into a handful. So it depends like the, the big winners of the stuff that I've been looking at. Sherwin Williams was one, uh, Ross stores, ROST, Microsoft, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think uh, Adobe was a reasonably big winner. Like all of those things got cheap but good at one stage. If you got them when they were cheap but good, and then you just held on for for dear life, you did end up with you know heavy concentration in the portfolio, twelve or fifteen percent at the biggest position. Let me, let me ask you guys this question. I think some of this, uh, some of the really lopsided returns that make never sell look so attractive. Uh, might have been an artifact of earlier IPOs. So earlier in the life cycle of a business. So there's more growth there. There's more there's more meat on the bones at the IPO time. Now, if if we change that to more today where I, things are IPOing at much bigger valuations, maybe there's not as much meat on the bones there to have kind of a, you know, you buy it and get and very, very extreme, you know, that, 
4,000 run grand slam, you know, as opposed to. <laughs> well, I think you can still get, you know, doing what I'm describing, part of the, the way you get a 4,000, 5,000, 6,000% return is you've got to hold for 20 years. I mean, that's the first criteria. So, you know, if you're thinking in those terms and you're like, what is something that can last for the next 20 years? That sort of narrows down your universe of investable products. Like, I don't know exactly. I, I don't know necessarily whether, because I've, I've, I've been trying to do this, right? I've been trying to look at these portfolios, these crops of names that come out and see if I can cherry pick out the ones that are the better options. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. But I what think- if, that, uh... What if we took it kind of to an illogical extreme and we said, okay, like we're, we're looking for kind of very high variance outcomes here, right? Very large right tail. Why is there not a never sell VC portfolio? Like let's go all the way to the beginning or towards the beginning and we're going to hold, get the entire right tail outcome and it's a never sell also. Dude, that's kind of what I think Austin Lieberman does. Well, he sold Zoom. Yeah, well, he said that it got bigger than his TAM or something like that. So I guess there's got to be a point that you, like, eventually sell. But I, I, do, I do think that's, like, I mean, you know, he and I have bet back and forth. And by the way, I'm crushing you right now, dog. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I, I do think he's pretty good at looking at for assets that, I guess the only thing that I can say, like currently, is at least that the market will buy that the TAM is huge later, right? I mean, now, now the the fundamentals have to justify the valuation to sort of play out to see what's what, right? Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I think that's I think that's what a lot of that that Montley Fool Seven Investing sort of like way of looking at the world does. That's exactly what they're trying to capture. I agree with you though that that you would think that starting from higher valuations would make the compounding harder, right? I mean, by definition, the math should be harder to compound on big bases. I like big bases. I cannot lie. Well, you've talked about this before, right? That I'm oh, no, sorry, it was Eric Cinnamon a few weeks ago. Sorry, I don't know how I confused you. I'm not. I'm not. Sorry, I'm not trying to be I don't mean. Know either, just, but I'll take it. I just thought you said it, but he was talking about you know if you have if you're buying something at a ten percent free cash flow yield. And you're comparing it to someone else that's got like a 3% free cash flow yield. The 3% free cash flow yield really has to do a lot for a long time to catch up to the 10% yeah. free cash flow yield. And I that's, actually have said something similar. I think that that's, you probably have. That's probably why I, I, I just Not couldn't. as well. I remember, <laughs> I remember Eric saying it. I just, I, and I'm sure, I'm sure you did too. I'm sure I remember no, you I saying know. it too. I'm I not know. trying to be rude. I, I, but I'm I, not being rude. We're boys. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember the quote, but the point, I, like, that's what I think really turns up from, you know, I'm, I, I'm not quantitative in the sense that, uh, I, like, I want to, I want to reconstruct what I would do in the moment and go back in time and use that as the way that I can get lots and lots of reps in, so I can recognize it now. That's what I'm trying to get to the point where, in a discretionary portfolio, where I could be like, this is something that has all of those criteria, all of those qualitative criteria that would help it go on. And really the thing that stands out to me is your chances are so much better of hitting a monster compounder over 20 years or 15 years or 10 years or whatever if your starting price is a bit cheaper. Like if, you, if you've got a reasonable free cash flow yield at the start and it's a good company, you're probably going to, you know, there's still plenty of those are going to be donuts too. You know, 
But the ones that work and get big, if you never sell, they do come to dominate the portfolio. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess that like how I've come to think about it is <clears throat> if you you just need to make sure that sorry <clears throat> that free cash flow yield. That speaking of which, man, how's your Rona? You okay? You better? Yeah, I haven't told anybody about that. By the way, I've had Corona. Oh. I've, I've had the uh, I've had the virus for the last few weeks, but I'm okay now. I'm back in the gym. All right, good. It's all good. This is just coughing. Anyway, I don't think you can um, transmit it down the internet. I'm pretty pretty sure you're. No, right. I'd have to. I'd have to have my mouth really around the mic. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, <laughs> this we're getting demonetized this time for sure. Yeah, it's over. I guess that on these on the low free cash flow yield, right? Like if it's a three percent free cash flow yield, the thing that does like worry me about that that game is, you know, if it goes to five percent, that's a big drawdown. Um, whereas like 10 to 11 or 10 to 12 is a lot lower drawdown. Now that said, you know, you got to make sure that you're not, um, like the business quality between the two free cash flow yields usually is quite a bit different. That's basically what yeah. you're making sure you're not on the wrong side of, but like now, now do treasuries. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. I mean, 1% to 2% is a big deal. There's, there's no dispute for me that you can, like a 10% free cash flow can, you know, all of those, I may, I may have misunderstood what you said here, but 10% free cash flow, are you saying going to a 5% free cash flow or, or just being chopped in half? No, no, it, I'm saying like 10 to 10% no. to 11%, right, is only like a 9% decline, right? But two to four is 50, right? So it's a it's a big drawdown. When the, when the numbers are that compressed, small yes, movements sorry, yeah, yeah, are that's big right. percentages. That's right. And to kind of like you, you know, I, the way I think about it, you want to be comparing to your your alternatives all the time. Your alternative is probably the ten year. That's kind of how I think about it. You could stick it into the ten year to get the yield and pro approximately similar duration. That not, it might be not be right. That's just like a rough rule of thumb. And I think if you do that, like that's one big thing that's changed over the last twenty years. That you went from like six or seven percent in the ten year to like yeah. one. So something that was like. 9% back in 2000, 9% free cash flow yield, like 9% for a really good company. Yeah, I'd do that. Now the equivalent is like 1.8%. Or yeah, it's tough. 0.9%. Like, you, you got to be right at that level. Well, and that's why I like a 4 or 5% free cash flow yield now for like, you know, S&P makes like a fair amount of sense but also that's uh I, I do think like it's inherently tenuous the situation like does that makes me nervous i guess is probably the best way to say it there's a lot a lot more actual risk i think out there than is perceived right now you've pulled all your returns into the present certainly feels that way or you're really relying on terminal value right like you know if if you can sell it at a 3% free cash flow yield down the road, then you do sort of harvest your IRR. But if your terminal value starts to fluctuate, the math can get pretty shitty pretty quick. We've, we've kind of been taking questions all through this one, but I, 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 we've got, I've got one question on the screen. We're probably going to run out of time. But the uh, this is something we've kind of talked about before. We talked about it in a different context in ROE, but is the market underpricing companies that can grow revenue at 5 to 10% for a long time at the ultra of 25 plus percent growers that might not be able to sustain it. I think we talked about that JT as like a, you know, the equivalent is like the, the ROE, average ROE in the S&P 500 is 13.3%. And so, 
you know, is anybody, and I'm explicitly screening for stuff that's 20% plus. So is anybody looking in that region of like, it's a 15% ROE, it's very stable, it's been doing that forever. It's the equivalent, right? Maybe that's where the undervaluation is. Yeah, I think that's right. I think boring compounders, you know, probably like, uh, like trash companies, uh, like, you know, my perception of what Texas Instruments is, do your own work. Um, and I don't own it. That's how confident I am in my perception. But, you know, sort of like businesses like that, <clears throat> uh, I would take to the index all day long. Um, now, whether or not the index provides a satisfactory return is sort of a debatable question, right? But I do think that some of those like lower, like, like not low growth, but six to 9% growers that are like compounder types, I bet they do pretty well relative to the index. Yeah, there's a couple of tickers up here. AZO, that's one. O'Reilly, I think is another one, that kind of thing. They're just basically listed leverage buyouts where they're just slowly buying back their stock. Although O'Reilly's growing revenues, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to, it's the thesis for all of those things that uh, electric cars just don't require as much servicing and so yeah. people aren't going to be going in and I think that's the terminal value thing that people are worried about. You're still going to get your fluffy dice in your foxtail though, right? Have to. I mean, that's a billion dollar industry right there. Unless, you know, they're all like pods, electric pods that like link up like a centipede. That's a, <laughs> that's a potential. Yeah. That's time, amigos. Just so I've if, heard it pitched. I don't yeah, think it's that crazy. If folks wanna if folks wanna uh get in contact with you guys or follow up, JT, what what do they uh how do they get follow you? Uh Twitter's probably the best for me. Farnham Jake One. And we have uh Farnham Street.com is my investing world website. And Bill's got a brand new podcast. Well it's it's a, there's a few episodes out now. It's very, very good. Uh, I love that Thank long you. form. How do people how do people follow along? Episode with that three is particularly good. Uh, I'm yeah, at Bill Brewster SCG, and uh, the podcast is the Business Brew. There's two of them. Pick the one with my face on it. There's another one. Oh come on. <laughs> yeah, but I got mine trademarked and everything, so I think oh, I'm nice. pretty okay. Yeah, I don't I don't think that uh, we're gonna have beef. <laughs> she doesn't the... want any of that. That's time. Thanks, Oof. amigos. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>